Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash recommend today. If you love Push Black's Black History Year, you'll love our newest podcast called Two Minute Black History. In only two minutes, you'll hear little known stories about our people and reclaim the knowledge we need to take action and advance our community. To move towards the future, you've got to look to the past. Learn the history you didn't get in school. Tune in to Two Minute Black History every Tuesday through Friday, right on the Black History Year feed and wherever you listen to podcasts. So we've all heard the saying that goes, you are what you eat. But when you don't know what's on the plate, what are you? I'm Jay from Push Black, and you're listening to Black History Year. Like all imperialist institutions, America's food system is killing us. By controlling who can and cannot access food, by determining what we can and cannot eat, White supremacy has starved millions of black folks while demanding we pay for commodified natural resources like water and food. But black people come from a long line of survivalists and self-sufficient farmers. We are the descendants of enslaved and free black people who independently farm the land to feed themselves, their families, and their communities. Today, Black activist farmers are tracing their ancestors' footsteps in the fight for food justice. That includes our guest today. Cheryl Wilby is the Communications and Development Director at Soul Fire Farm, an Afro-Indigenous-centered community farm committed to uprooting racism and seeding sovereignty in the food system. She's coordinated the recovery of fresh fruits and vegetables from local farmers and other community partners, and has served as the market manager of the Synecdoche Green Market. She's also one of the 12 Black food system leaders who developed the Anti-Racist Farmers Market Toolkit in collaboration with the Farmers Market Coalition. Get ready for an insightful and important interview that will change your idea of what it means to have a good meal. Before we jump into it, though, we need to talk about a Jim Crow farming system that's still affecting black folks today. Stay tuned. White people are stealing from us again using this scheme. For black farmers, a dark history may be repeating itself. Owning a business certainly seems like a lucrative way to earn income and build wealth. For some of us, however, trying to do this has not only left us in debt, but also repeating a horrific part of our history. 
After enslavement, many hopeful black farmers worked for rich white landowners who loaned them what they needed to start farming businesses. Their debts would be taken out of their profits and eventually they'd be free and clear as successful business people. Sound familiar? It should. It's called sharecropping, but it rarely turned out as promised. The same is true for black chicken farmers today. Black farmers are signing contracts with huge chicken companies who provide everything they need to get started. But once they do, the good parts of this arrangement fly the coop. Just as farmers are about to pay off their debts and own their farms outright, the company owners force them to upgrade, placing them right back into debt. On top of that, farmers are shortchanged on supplies and other essentials. This is modern-day sharecropping. Black labor is one of the most valuable resources on Earth, and white-owned companies are continuing to exploit us to turn a profit. This is why working together to create our own economies is a must, and it all starts with owning our food. Cheryl, what does Black liberation look like to you? For me, it's very much centered around the work that I'm doing right now at Soul Fire Farm. Soul Fire is a food justice organization based in Grafton, New York, where we're really trying to focus on having spaces for Black and brown farmers to succeed and also for our Black Indigenous POC community to have access to food, particularly fresh fruits and vegetables. We started out as this sliding scale CSA, community-supported agriculture, where we were doing doorstep delivery of fresh fruits and vegetables to our community members living under food apartheid. We use a term food apartheid at Soul Fire, really recognizing the element of racism that plays a major role in the way our food system is designed. When we think about the history of redlining in this country, how the federal government commissioned maps to be made in the 1930s to really make it so that Black communities specifically didn't have access to loans to have a mortgage to be able to buy property in their own communities. And these same types of systems are also used to determine where our grocery stores end up. So we have these communities where folks are living under food apartheid. Growing up, I don't remember things like a salad or fresh fruits and vegetables being a large part of our diet. And a lot of that had to do with my family experiencing food insecurity, where my parents made a choice to purchase canned goods or lower cost items because that's what they could afford at the time. So being in this work with Soul Fire in this space where I can work to be able to make it so that folks who look like me have access to fresh fruits and vegetables feels like Black liberation to me right there. I also think about our work really centered around training up the next generation of Black and brown farmers. When we think about how, you know, less than 
1% of farmland in this country is owned by Black farmers. We want to reverse that narrative and see more of us on land, um, thinking back to how in the, the time of peak Black land ownership around like the 1910s, um, Black farmers had around 14 million acres of land, and now we own less than 1%. Like, that's crazy. And I'm so grateful to be in this space where we are working to make it so that it seems possible for, for Black and Brown folks to imagine life on land, whether that's through providing supports for land access, um, the training and skills needed to be successful farmers. That's an essential part of the work that Soul Fire is doing. And I also feel like that is very much Black liberation for me. What were you doing before Soul Fire? Were you working with your hands in a similar capacity? Prior to working at Soulfire, I worked for a food access organization for two and a half years where I was specifically working to recover unwanted fruits and vegetables from local farms, um, wholesalers and other distributors, items that, you know, don't sit, fit certain specifications or they don't look as pretty, but they're edible and bringing that food to um, folks who are in um, food pantries, soup kitchens and shelters, and also doing outreach for this organization. And while I was at this other organization, I was also simultaneously managing a regional farmer's market, which I still do to this day. Take a step back even farther. How did you get attracted to this type of work? It's really, for me, centered around, again, my lived experience with food insecurity. Um, when I think about the, the health issues that um, predominantly Black and brown communities, like the community I was living in, experience due to the fact that we have lack of access to fresh fruits and vegetables. My father has diabetes. My grandmother had diabetes. Um, this chronic diet-related illness that's found at higher rates in our predominantly Black and brown communities. And I just truly believe that if my family and other families like mine had the ability to afford healthier food options, just having the choice would have helped my family um, not have to experience this lack of access to, to fresh fruits and vegetables. And I will name that growing up, I never thought that we were, were poor or anything, but it wasn't until that I started studying like food insecurity and sustainable food systems in college that I really developed the language to articulate what it was that we were experiencing, which was food insecurity, and realizing how that's messed up, that we experienced that. Um, but in the moment, it didn't occur to me when I was going through it. So having that realization really propels me into wanting to do what I can to be able to support um, specifically Black and brown folks, people who look like me, and having access to fresh foods. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me, because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. 
In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash recommend today. Talk to me about the re- more about the relationship between Soulfire and the community that you all serve. I'm just curious about how it all works. With our communities, I'd say we have a few different types of community members that we're regularly interfacing with. So we have our volunteer community who are folks who might be coming to the farm for one of our work and learn days, which are opportunities for people to help us with whatever farming tasks we have going on, whether it be harvesting or trellising in our high tunnels for our tomatoes to be able to grow, or it's the end of the season and we need to be putting the bed to rest. Um, so we need to we need to have support with all of these different tasks, recognizing that we are a pretty small farm team. We have a farm manager, an assistant farm manager, and then our program director also supports with farming tasks. So we really, really rely on community to get this important work done. And that also applies to the ways in which we get this life-giving food out to our community. We offer this program called our Solidarity Share Program, which is basically the the newer version of the sliding scale CSA I mentioned earlier, where previously folks paid what they could to be able to receive a share from the farm, but now we're offering shares from the farm completely free of charge to community members. But it takes a lot of folks to get it to other folks in our community who really need this life-giving food. By ourselves, we're able to deliver about 25 shares to folks' doorsteps, but through our community, through institutional partnerships with folks like the Free Food Fridge in Albany, um, there's actually one right outside my window here, the Refugee Center um, and other community partners who serve as pickup sites, we're actually able to serve over 100 more families um, through having those partnerships. And then I would say our alumni network is very, very extensive right now. These are folks who are coming for our our farmer training programs, where people are coming to learn about Afro-Indigenous farming practices and how they can take what they learn and bring that back to their community to start up um, programs similar to Soul Fire or just being able to be food justice activists within their communities from what they learn at the farm is really important. When you say Afro-Indigenous farming practices, uh, I'd like to dig in there a bit more as well. Uh, Why is it just important that we understand that these practices exist? And what are some examples of these practices that may be different than what folks expect when they think of farming practices? As someone who studied agriculture in college, um, it was interesting to me to learn how a lot of the agricultural techniques that we use today and have been taught to associate with, with white farmers specifically, their agricultural innovations are actually from our ancestors. These Afro-Indigenous practices that are really specifically working to regenerate the land that we're growing on. Um, So 
by that I mean working to give back to the land rather than constantly taking from it. So when you're you're harvesting from the land, what are you giving back to her so that she will continue to go for you? Um, and some of those techniques of regeneration actually come from ancestors like Dr. George Washington Carver, who taught us about cover cropping and mulching, um, cover cropping being, you know, using leguminous um, plants like beans and, and clover to return nitrogen back to the soil, um, which is an essential nutrient for your plants to be able to grow, uh, using mulching to be able to really suppress weeds and, and hold in water so that your plants feel supported. These are the techniques that we are sharing with our community at the Come to Learn with us and really working to ensure that folks recognize that these are techniques that we should be proud of and hold dear and they come from, from our ancestors. So if someone wanted to go out and start a farm today buy some land or they just got a lot of you know space in their backyard they want to do this for someone that's listening and you know maybe interested in getting started how they could be thinking about this if folks have the capacity and ability to be able to grow for themselves where possible obviously you're not going to be able to grow every single thing that might be regular to you in your diet but if you could start a little garden and maybe grow some lettuce or herbs, um, that's really helpful in being able to take that slow and intentional process with your growing. And also thinking about ways that you can work in collaboration with folks in your community to be able to grow. If you're growing if you're growing collards, maybe another neighbor could grow some herbs that you really like to use in your diet. If we can have this more connected community of growing, um, that could be successful in us being able to achieve food sovereignty for ourselves and for our community. When I say food sovereignty, I'm speaking specifically to be able to have agency in the food system and being able to know where your food comes from, being able to grow culturally appropriate foods because you have the skills and the knowledge to do so. That's part of what we're doing at Soulfire is equipping folks with those skills. When you say culturally appropriate foods, what does that look like? For me as a Jamaican, <laughs> um, I'm thinking of, you know, crops that are are native to my homeland, like Kalaloo. Um, I don't I don't see that very often around here. And as I mentioned earlier, I, I manage a regional farmers market. And even in that space where I'm surrounded by like 20 plus farmers, noticing how maybe one of them has that as an offering. And it's the the one farmer that is someone of color and understands like why this is something that we need to have at the market. Really working to have these culturally appropriate foods that are um, really native to our homelands or just of cultural significance for us is really important in these food spaces. Dig into that for me, but I'm curious your thoughts around the significance there, the connection of food and culture, because, you know, on the other end, some folks may just be like, hey, I just, I need 
the calories, need the energy. I just need to get whatever I can get. But I'm curious as to how we can be thinking about um, the cultural relevance of our food, especially for black folks in a country that uh, doesn't embrace or encourage us to have our own culture. I would say that it's important for us to advocate for for having these these cultural significant foods in spaces like farmers markets and in our grocery stores. Um, one thing that our our founder Leah often says is that to free ourselves, we must feed ourselves. And in this moment, that particular quote came to me because I'm thinking about how if we want to see change in the food system, it's going to have to start with us because the food system wasn't really designed with our best interests in mind. So we need to be able to reclaim our right to have agency in the food system, reclaim our right to belong to land um, as farmers, as food justice activists. Um, it's all it's all connected in terms of us having a say in our food system and bringing about the change that we want to see. For sure. And I definitely get that on the system level. And I think just to make it even more personal, you know, for folks listening, um, I'll rephrase my question, right? So you mentioned a good example of you being Jamaican and looking for Kalu and um, just for you, like why is something like that personally important to you to be able to have that culturally appropriate food on your table as opposed to just saying, hey, I'm just going to try to eat whatever I can. Thank you you for for clarifying that. For me, it's, it's about connecting to my family. Um, My family, they're not necessarily far away. They're in New Jersey, but I don't see them very often. And there are times that I find myself, you know, just getting a bit emotional when I think about food and what it used to look like when I was with my parents back in New Jersey and how I don't have the access to things like um, Kalalu and really well-executed Aki and Saltfish or other things that are um, typical in our diet because there just aren't the options here for me to have access to that. So for me, it's it's about when I am able to have access to vegetables that are native to my my family's upbringing, being able to cook that in the kitchen and listen to some reggae music or just be in a space with myself reflecting on my family and how much I miss them. It's an opportunity for me to feel closer to them when I can't be in the same space. I'm from the South and spent some time outside of the South and was looking for certain items that we as Black folks cooked and ate in the South, certain ways of preparation. Um, And, you know, at Push Black, we send out these daily Black history stories and some of our top performing stories had to do with the history of foods such as okra or collard greens and black eyed peas specifically. And I think there is a desire uh, amongst folks to find these elements of our culture, which, uh, you know, we may just do as part of, uh, we may eat or cook these things as part of 
we how we've grown up, but don't necessarily realize that there is a deep um, cultural relevance to them. That is, yes, part of just uh, the diet, but also deeper than that in terms of a significance and a way of viewing the world. So the folks that you all train, are they returning to where their home base is with similar models in terms of supporting their community? Or is it folks that are coming just individually to learn, are their families learning how to farm and sustain and support themselves? It's a mixture. Um, it's some folks who are just coming to to learn how to grow for themselves and for their families. But I would say a majority of the folks coming for our training programs are people who want to be farmers. Um, and specifically, we actually partner with some Black-led organizations within our networks, like the National Black Food Justice Alliance. Um, we recently formed a partnership with them where a few of their members came to our immersion program this summer to be able to learn about the Afro-Indigenous indigenous techniques that we um, particularly focus on in this training program, but also to allow us space for peer-to-peer -peer sharing about the work that folks in the National Black Food Justice Alliance um, community are doing in their spaces. Um, so it's an opportunity for us to share information about the ways that we are using our training programs to train up the next generation of Black Indigenous POC farmers, because we realize that it's going to take multiple folks in this is in this work to be able to train more black and brown farmers. Our waiting lists for immersion programs are like over two years long. It's it's a lot of folks who are interested, but how can we use this platform to train other farmers so that they can bring that back to their communities and train up other folks? Basically we have this structure of working to build out our work rather than build up because we don't need to be the only ones holding this work. Let's share this space with other Black Indigenous POC experts. So what does it look like if this model is scaled to serve Black communities around the country? What does it look like when we are able to practice that food sovereignty uh, at scale across at least, you know, the United States. Our goal is by 2050 for U.S. Black farmers to steward 100,000 farms on 10 million acres of rural and urban land. So these farmer training programs is, that's the catalyst to make that vision a reality. This doesn't look like every single person growing their own food, but enough farmers to to support the communities in uh, sufficient ways. Am I understanding this correctly? Right. Mm -hmm. Have you all seen any pushback from um, the the system as it exists now that you know may be threatened by what you all are doing? The Pushback or challenge really comes from the lack of resources. Um, so I'm specifically thinking of 
a program that we launched last year called the Braiding Seeds Fellowship, um, which is designed to really support um, aspiring Black Indigenous POC farmers through a $50,000 stipend um, and a variety of resources, including land finding services. Um, But what we've noticed with that program um, after it first launched, it's been 18 months now, is that the main issue that farmers who apply for this program are naming is the, the lack of access to land is a huge barrier for them. Um, so knowing that, I think a, a part of our revamping of the program, our thinking about our focus moving forward, we're trying to acquire more funding so that we can just give the money right to the farmers so that they can buy land for them to be able to have farms, because that's not currently a part of the, the program offering. Is this focus mostly in the same uh, in New York or the the region up there or is it nationwide? So right now, the program, we're specifically focusing on farmers um, from the the northeast to the southeast along the uh, uh, Underground Railroad uh, Great Migration Corridor specifically. Do you have folks that come in from the, the south to learn from you all? I would say with our immersion programs, a majority of the folks participating for the past two years have been from the Northeast, but that was mostly due to COVID-19, us wanting to prioritize folks in this area um, in terms of issues that we might experience with with transportation or rules and regulations with COVID-19 change. Um, That just made it a bit easier to hold the program. But in the past, um, we've we've had folks from the South form about at least 30 to 40 percent of the, the cohort for the season. You mentioned the youth program. What does it look like or feel like when you see youth really engaging with the land? Can you give us a picture of, uh, of what that feels like or looks like? Yeah, I would say... The moments that I get to interact with youth are definitely the most precious to me. Um, getting to see their excitement for, you know, transplanting um, lettuce into the ground or harvesting um, collards or kale, like just seeing them get excited about putting their hands in the dirt is a beautiful feeling. And then having the opportunities to show them, okay, well, you you harvested that cabbage. Like, what are the ways that you can use this cabbage to feed your family? It doesn't necessarily have to be just sauteing the cabbage. You can, um, you can pickle it and you can make kimchi with it. These are all different types of ways that you can interact with this one this one vegetable variety um, and just seeing their excitement of the the different ways that we can use our food is really beautiful. You know, a lot of folks listening may think that, well, for folks may just in general wonder, like, you know, there's a reason that most people aren't uh, farming or growing their own food, right? When argument is like, it's just convenient to go and get food from other places. But I think from what I'm understanding, this uh, 
work that you all are doing is birthed out of the opposite of that and not having fresh food being convenient or right down the 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 street. Um, but for some, it still may seem like farming is, quote unquote, going backwards or something like that. So I'm curious as to how you all see that uh, distinction um, and how folks could perhaps think of this in a, in a more nuanced way. Right. So when I think about how important it is for for Black folks to be involved with farming, I think about all that was taken from our ancestors who did want to be farmers, but they were lynched because they wanted to be farmers and had the audacity to be uppity and imagine a life on land. Um, I think about 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 that and how important it is for me in this day to reclaim our right to belong to land. Um, we have such a a very very painful history with land um, as as Black folks in this country, um, but the land wasn't wasn't the cause of our pain per se. It was the scene of the crime, but it did not actually commit the crime. And I feel like it's important that we remember that and remember that connecting to land is important to our overall health and well-being. It is amazing to see how people feel just reinvigorated and like a completely new person after having the opportunity to be on the land with us for training programs, to have your feet in the soil, to touch the soil. It It's spiritual and, and life-changing. Um, anytime I'm able to be on the land, it's like I just have a complete reset when I'm able to put my hand in the soil. So I would say that folks should hold on to that idea that the land is healing for us and we need to connect with it. Cheryl, thank you for being with us on Black History Year. Thank you so much for having me. That was Cheryl Wilby, Communications and Development Director at Soul Fire Farm. To get involved in the movement to uproot racism from the food system, be sure to visit soulfirefarm.org. You'll find resources and action steps to begin transforming your local food system. Again, that's soulfirefarm.org. At Push Black, we agree with Marcus Garvey when he said, a people without knowledge of their past, history, origin, and culture is like a tree without roots. And I'm guessing you probably feel like that's important too. I mean, you're here at the end of a podcast about black history. You matter. Your choice to be here matters. It lets us know that you value this work. And you make Push Black happen with your contributions at blackhistoryyear.com. Most folks do five or ten bucks a month, but really everything makes a difference. Thank you for supporting the work. Black History Year is a production of Push Black, the nation's largest nonprofit black media company. 
Our team includes Tarek Alani, Brooke Brown, Tasha Taylor, and Lily Workner. Producing this episode, we have Sydney Smith and Lynn Webb for Push Black, and Ronald Young Jr., who also edits the show. Black History Year's executive producers are Michael L. Sessor for Lemon House and Julian Walker for Push Black. Peace.